The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.deliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to another episode of the Liberating Arts podcast. I am Jeff Bilbro. With me today is uh, Professor Philip Donnelly, who is the director of the Great Texts program at Baylor University. His scholarship has focused on John Milton, uh, and I was actually privileged to take a graduate seminar with him on Milton when I was at Baylor. But more recently, he's turned his attention to classical education and to how um, old understandings of the trivium might be re-envisioned or reimagined for uh, education today. So I want to begin, Phil, by asking you to describe your experience with classical education. Uh, let us know how you became interested in thinking and writing about this topic um, and yeah, why you think it's an important topic to think about. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, and then I guess start there and then I'll ask you about your new book. Sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the liberal arts, uh, education is something that I've, in a sense, backed into specifically the verbal arts education and the, the trivium. Uh, I came to the, um, the study of grammar, logic, and rhetoric initially, again, through the Renaissance, uh, through the study of people like Milton and uh, Dunn and Herbert and uh, the, uh, or Shakespeare, writers in this period who were formed in these verbal arts. And uh, uh, I also did some earlier work on, on Augustine uh, and, and hermeneutics and uh, reader response theory, which, which led me uh, then uh, actually forward into, into the Renaissance. But as I began about 15, 20 years ago, encountering uh, classical educators who are interested in recovering uh, this tradition in the present, I, I realized that there was a, an important way in which a lot of the issues that people were wrestling with had been wrestled with before. For example, thinking about um, as a Christian educator working in the classical liberal arts tradition, say you're teaching rhetoric and you're thinking, okay, if I'm teaching rhetoric, what does it mean to actually think about not just Aristotle's rhetoric, but the rhetorical uh, approach uh, teaching the liberal arts in light of a Christian anthropology? Well, it just so happens there's about a, a thousand years of reflection on that very question. Um, and uh, it was important for me to be able to introduce people to uh, that tradition. And uh, I've, I've taken it, again, over the last 15 to 20 years to be something of, of a, my vocation to come alongside uh, K through 12 educators and help them begin to think about what it looks like for them in the classroom to connect their practices with um, a clear understanding of both, not just the content, but also the goals um, and also who they are and who their students are and connecting their practices in the classroom with that clarified sense of purpose um, as well in light of the Christian liberal arts tradition. 
Yeah, that's helpful. And I guess as we talk about your um, recent book project, that might we might get some more clarity on what that looks like. Um, maybe can you just kind of outline the the basic argument you make in this book, and maybe start with Dorothy Sayers. I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with her uh, Lost Tools of Learning, which is kind of a seminal essay for the classical tradition, and and maybe uh, you know describe how what you're advocating for is both. Uh, somewhat complementary, but also somewhat different from her formulation. Sure. So the uh, the title of the book is "The Lost Seeds of Learning," which uh, is basically trying to recover what I would construe as a biblical understanding of the the verbal arts as, in addition to being like seeds in some ways, also. Uh, sorry, in addition to being like tools in some ways, also being like seeds in some ways. And uh, the argument unfolds uh, looking at grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Uh, the, un the argument unfolds considering each of them in, in really two steps. The first step is to understand how these arts can be like tools in some ways, but we have to recover a sense of art of tools as not just neutral tools, but actually the realization that tools have purposes built into them and that there are, um, and so we first have to kind of distinguish between what I call uh, neutral tools and purposive tools. And actually it's a distinguishing between a concept of tool as, as neutral uh, versus a concept of tool as actually having a, a purpose built into it. So we can think about the arts in that way first. And then we can also though think about the the verbal arts, uh, also as being like seeds and more than tools in the sense that uh, they have with them the capacity to communicate life. Um, they are also uh, have a genealogical character to them. Uh, and, um, and ultimately though, it's this, this feature of uh, them communicating purposes that are not simply of human determination. That's the crucial thing, uh, I think is, and of course, which sets it apart from tools, which are typically understood to be, even when they're understood to be purposive, they are typically understood to serve merely human purposes. And so when we think of the verbal arts as both like tools in some respects, but also like seeds in some respects, we keep in a sense alive, this possibility that tools could communicate purposes that are not merely human. And, and this is important because um, if we inhabit a vision of human language that assumes that words can only serve merely human purposes, like we're basically inhabiting an imagination that presumes that Christian faith is impossible. Yeah, and maybe say, I wonder if you could say a bit more about that and or connect it to what you said earlier regarding this long tradition of thinking about um, rhetorical education in the context of a Christian anthropology. I mean, if, if you have a Christian understanding of what it means to be a person, um, maybe why is this understanding of the verbal arts as seed-like in some ways, particularly appropriate to that understanding of, um, of human personhood? Yes, well, the as you, I'm sure you know, I mean, the, the biblical image uh, comes to, in a sense, a head or a, it comes to a, a climax in uh, 
in Jesus' uh, teachings regarding the kingdom of heaven, right, it's, it's like a seed, right? The, or actually, the, the logos of the kingdom is uh, like a seed that's planted in a field. And, uh, but in those passages, um, you know, Jesus is drawing upon a long Hebrew tradition that connects up uh, words with seeds in particular. And the, the crucial uh, element is, I suggest to you, the way in which a seed communicates life through its, uh, through its death, right? It's, and in that sense, it's, it's cruciform. Um, and, uh, and that's also how, in a sense, words are understood as, as potentially self-giving. Now, I'm not suggesting that all words are necessarily like that, um, but that we need to keep alive the possibility uh, that words could have that function. Um, uh, the words words can operate in that way. Um, and so going back to the, the anthropology element here, I mean, of course, it's the question of, of whether humans are made in the divine image, right? That's, that's also, I think, a central a feature of this. And if you, um, if you have an anthropology that says, um, you know, humans basically consist of uh, matter in motion, um, and that they can be simply reduced to that matter in motion, then, uh, then the verbal arts um, and the arts in general, the liberal arts would be simply reducible to kind of calculation uh, along regarding uh, that motion of matter, right? But if you construe humans as bearers of the divine image, then, uh, then they also have capacity to imitate this communication of self-giving. Uh, and that's, um, I think that's central to the biblical understanding of the human person um, and uh, to, uh, to the nature of, of language in, in the biblical account. Um, I'll say, I mean, but generally, I mean, this has consequences for specifically the chapter on rhetoric where I talk about um, the five common tasks of, of the order, orator as they're understood. And I, I talk a little bit about how each of those tasks um, takes on a, a different character uh, when we understand them in light of the incarnation. And I'm, I'm using shorthand here, the image of, of the seed as a way of, in, in fact, imagining how, um, how the incarnation uh, works its way through our understanding of, of the universe and, and human beings, uh, self-understanding as well. Yeah, well, I'm certainly uh, sympathetic or, or eager uh, to to embrace this image, you know, as, as someone who appreciates Wendell Berry. Um, and I and I think you know, the beginning there is something, and you talk about this in your book. There is something to the fact that humans were created in a garden, um, and then, as you do, connecting that with these um, agricultural images in the New Testament, things like uh, unless a grain of wheat is or a grain of corn uh, dies. Uh, it will not bear fruit, but if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. And this notion that, you know, yeah, this, this idea of part of the human purpose, I guess, um, is to, is to take on this cruciform and seed like function. And then, uh, our words, uh, should, should fit that mold as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's an exciting way to think about language and the task of, uh, communicating with people, and it and it's it's a way of maybe breaking out of 
utilitarian notions of language like the, you know which go back obviously to the sophists or before mm -hmm. yes. um, where, where language is just a way of getting other people to do what you want them to do or agree with you or uh yeah you know getting what you want yeah and this does connect up to the idea of of what an actual art is in terms of what it is to be apprenticed in an art um i think this is i think that there's a way in which it's you know, the 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 sophist model again which is which is ancient and, and you could say is sort of revived in the modern period in particular ways um the sophist model assumes that that you can actually detach you know uh persuasive technique from an understanding of the human good um and this is an argument a very ancient sort of argument um uh but uh this is why in fact you know the the people responding to the sophists, whether it be the Platonists or the Aristotelians said, no, actually there is a sense of, you have to assume some sense of what a human good actually is before you can um, uh, kind of give an adequate account of even what the good of persuasion would be, right? Um, now, the way this plays out in, in terms of our, our contemporary practices, um, I think which is interesting is that there's a way in which student formation, education here in particular, happens by a variety of means. There's, there's direct instruction, there's indirect instruction through you know, narrative and drama. There's, you know, there's also questioning dialogue, and then there's apprenticeship. And the thing is that you can do direct and indirect instruction you know, by means of a video presentation, right? By means of a YouTube video. But I think a lot of people realize that, you know, real education uh, consists of more than watching a series of YouTube videos, right? I think most people intuit this, um, but what, what we're still looking for is a way of explaining what it is that sets it apart. And I suggest that it involves this interpersonal questioning dialogue is part of it, as well as apprenticeship, which is the opportunity for a teacher to actually observe what you're doing and to provide you with direct personal feedback. Uh, and these are, again, are, are distinctives of, you know, a Baylor edu undergraduate education, for example, um, but it can also happen, I think, at the, the K through 12 le level in an appropriate way as well in terms of, and I think that's what people recognize that that personal connection, which is that, again, that personal self-giving, not just the sort of, um, you know, dramatic, you know, I'm, you know, there's a, there's kind of a, a more mundane form of self mortification, as it were, that can happen in this process of daily uh, giving personally for the good of the other, uh, which includes this questioning uh, conversation and dialogue with others, as well as the process of apprenticeship. And the problem is that those last two things are not really scalable, right? That you can't industrially reproduce these sort of uh, personal encounters, whereas you know, direct instruction and even indirect instruction, like, you know, um, fictive discourses, uh, drama and narrative can be, can be mass produced, right? But um, those other two require that kind of interpersonal uh, interaction that, that requires a kind of personal sacrifice to, to do them. Yeah, and, you know, one of the, the provocations for this Liberating Arts project was uh, the pandemic. And obviously, one of the big effects of that was um, making all of us teach our classes online for a season. And one of the things that I think has encouraged me as a result of that 
unplanned experiment was the appetite among my students to return to the, to the physical classroom um, mm -hmm. and to return to you know living together and living and learning communities. And I think it was a reminder or, or maybe even a uh, instructive in the, for the first time for a lot of people that there is a difference between those different modes of instruction that you just laid out. And that maybe the best way that students can uh, be formed by both direct instruction and indirect instruction. You know, maybe the best way that students can learn, for instance, how Milton offers uh, an education in the right and wrong uses of words is through uh, dialogue with a, a teacher who knows students personally and can engage with their questions and lead them through Milton's instructive text so so that these aren't mutually exclusive exactly um but the personal element is also not um scalable as you said or um dispensable you you, you can have milton and he can be sitting on the shelf but if you don't have a teacher uh the student may never really know how to walk through and glean the riches that are on offer there Right. And I mean, and there's also a sense in which you, in reading a given text, you, you may or may not see that or appreciate the conversation in which the text is participating. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, um, that's where a, a guide can be helpful to say, oh, well, in this, in this particular passage, this, this text is responding to an earlier uh, part of the conversation here about this particular issue. And this is why they're taking this position. Um, and this is why it's also uh, continues to be a debated question in the present. And this is why it matters for how you live your life in the present. So I think that that both sense of, of to whom the text is responding, that what is the larger conversation and how the, that conversation extends into the present. Uh, is important. And I think you can do some of that, obviously, through direct instruction, as well as indirect instruction. Um, um, but it's, it's when you're in a room with somebody asking them, well, what did you notice about this passage? Um, and what are the what, what would it look like for you to make an argument for an insight about this passage? And you hold them personally accountable for that. There's a qualitatively different kind of learning that goes on. And I think that's, uh, and of course you can do a version of that, uh, you know, by electronic means. So it's not just, a, it's not, the division here simply isn't uh, just electronic versus in-person. It's a difference also between synchronous and asynchronous learning, but also between you know, how many people are, have you got involved in uh, even an asynchronous online environment, right? Um, can you actually engage them? And then there's another layer at which, of course, there are certain things that, um, uh, would be, are even, you know, more fully uh, enabled when you're actually in person uh, in terms of that uh, sense of personal engagement and, uh, and apprenticeship, because there's levels of uh, detail that you can, you can observe. And it depends on the activity. I, I guess that's the other thing that I think is crucial is to recognize that there is, I think, a way in which um, the, un the, the aspect of the arts that's not often appreciated is that it is an art in the sense is a sort of practices oriented in a certain way that uh, a person needs to be apprenticed in, uh, just like they would be apprenticed in any other kind of practice. Um, and that, uh, I mean, this this is impressed upon me in my experience over the years of 
of just even teaching academic writing. Uh, my students, um, I get them to, to meet with me and to read their essays out loud and we talk about them. And um, that experience for a lot of them is the, is the first time that anybody's actually, um, in a sense, held them personally accountable for it. You say in this sentence, this is what you say, but do you mean this or this or this? And they say, well, what I mean is this other thing. And I say, well, then that's what you need to say. You know, <laughs> do that a few times in the course of a conversation um, about their writing uh, and they realize, oh, it actually does make a difference what I say, right? Um, and they, they, they take a kind of personal ownership for the connection between their writing and their own intellectual formation that, that I don't think happens in any other way. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's an element of apprenticeship in, uh, in this that's often, I think, gets lost. And I think the same applies to, to you know, what, what people call sort of teaching in the various disciplines um, is a little bit misleading because there probably isn't a, a universal applied method, right? That, that depends on which art you're being apprenticed and which science or which discipline, right? So you know, being apprenticed in, in the chemistry class is different from what it is to be apprenticed in the, the, the history classroom or, um, or, the, or, the, um, or the social sciences, right? There's a way in which there's a particular set of practices that you're being apprenticed in as a, as a student. Um, and I think that that needs to be recognized. Yeah, I think you make a helpful set of distinctions that are fruitful for thinking through, you know, what kinds of instruction might take place through print, what, what kinds maybe even could take place through asynchronous video or whatever, uh, but also what kinds of formation um, really best occurs in interpersonal dialogue. And I think your, your description of um, these one-on-one these -on -one student conferences certainly resonates with my own experience um, meeting with students, that it's often in those conversations where they really, I, I really see growth and improvement um, because I guess as, as Barry says, because they have to stand by their words, you know, they have mm -hmm. to, they're being held to account for what they've said. And uh, yeah, the physical presence of me in the room is crucial to that, I think. Yeah. Um, that's just how humans are for, what, for whatever reason, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I guess because we're <laughs> you know, embodied beings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, what you've just articulated is helpful for thinking through the consequences of this for the form of education. Uh, I wonder if you could also say something about uh, how this uh, understanding of the verbal arts might provide a response to the increasingly utilitarian pressures on education. I think there's a lot of pressure, especially at college level, but now even more so, I think on the K through 12 level as well, to provide students with a very career oriented education. You know, here, here are the skills or the competencies that you need to be successful in this uh, field of employment. Mm -hmm. And I think the liberal understanding the liberal arts as as tools, even tools with an intrinsic purpose, uh, it is helpful because it can articulate to parents and students that yeah, there are certain things that you can do if you have mastered these verbal arts. Um, but understanding the the verbal arts as seed like maybe uh, provides a different set of responses in that it's not. Uh, narrowly utilitarian. I mean, 
maybe students and parents don't want to be told that there's a sort of cruciform nature to wielding words well. But I guess, could you reflect on how, how this understanding of the verbal arts might be a response to the utilitarian trends in education? Yeah, well, I think it's important to recognize that the, um, the liberal arts, that, and by which, I mean, speaking not just of the, of the verbal arts now, but the liberal arts, that is the three verbal arts of grammar, logic, rhetoric, and then the, what are traditionally understood as the mathematical arts, um, the, the four that are called the quadrivium, those liberal arts traditionally are understood to be a preparation for the pursuit of wisdom, right? And uh, the fact is that wisdom isn't just a theoretical thing. Wisdom is intensely practical um, and we, we rely on it every day. Um, when we have a problem, we go specifically to the friends that we know that we have that have wisdom rather than the ones that don't, right? I mean, there's a way in which um, we make this distinction all the time. Um, but the purpose, again, it's the understanding is that um, the, when you reduce them, when you reduce the arts to um, merely economic means, then you are again assuming that they're cut off from questions of purpose, uh, actually ultimate human purpose. That is any purpose that isn't just, you know, of our own fabrication, right? Um, and, and I think that this is uh, important. Um, I mean, just to, to give you a, a sense of these things, I, I talk a little bit about this, the, the um, there is, is something of a, of a crisis in, um, uh, in, in medicine uh, regarding, you know, how physicians are able to, to cope with um, the, um, the, the strain that's put upon them. Um, and there's, a, there's you know, articles have been published on you know, the, the suicide rate among physicians, right? Uh, and here's a, a group that's the, uh, the height of technical achievement and social status in our culture. Um, and um, the issue is that at the end of the day, um, what matters isn't just how you make a living, but can you live with yourself? Right, and this involves having a sense of purpose that will sustain you uh, through um, the suffering that's going to come, uh, that does come, and um, and that that is the the thing that the liberal arts, when they're uh, well conceived and understood, uh, as a preparation for wisdom, rather than merely a, a preparation for making money. I think that they can be they can be helpful in that way. That's helpful. And I guess that also speaks to maybe why they're called, at least in, there's many ways you can, you can construe the liberal um, of liberal arts, but uh, maybe one way that goes along with what you're articulating is the sense that they free you to be a full person um, and to exercise your humanity well. Um, and being economically productive is part of that, but by no means, I would hope, the, the sum of that. Right. So it takes wisdom uh, of a certain sort to, you know, to be able to, to collect and, and maintain the resources, yeah, to survive, whether it be, you know, chopping enough firewood to keep warm through the winter. <laughs> but the, again, the question is, you know, why do you want to do that? That's a question 
that's not going to be a, a, a simply means ends calculation. All right. Um, there's a question about your ultimate purposes. Um, and again, the I would just be be clear to to, to clarify that the um, you know the verbal and mathematical arts um, are um, are traditionally not understood to be the whole of wisdom, but they serve and they find their fulfillment and their highest purpose in the pursuit of wisdom questions, as my uh, colleague uh, Todd Buris likes to say. Uh, yeah, and that would be particularly true, I suppose, in the Christian tradition that um, sees these liberal arts as serving uh, maybe theological understanding or, or even love uh, over overall. Sure. Although, I mean, in, uh, you know, the pre-Christian ancient tradition as well, there was a understanding of these arts as, as serving um, the, the crucial role of, of ordering life together in the pursuit of, of justice um, right. in, as an order in both the self and in, in relationship to others. Right. Yeah. I guess maybe to, um, to come back to, Phil, to this, 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 where we started, your shift from um, more academic research to thinking about how this relates to K-12, uh, you're a, a college professor and you're trying to, um, you know, form your college students in these arts and in these um, practices. And obviously there are parallels between what you do in, in the college classroom and what a teacher might do in a high school or middle school classroom. Um, but there's also differences, right? And I think perhaps one of those differences is that parents uh, and the classical movement attests to this, I think, that parents are perhaps more willing to um, fund and have their children invest in an education in, for wisdom and for these kind of foundational arts um, when they're younger. And then by the time college comes around, they seem drawn more toward pragmatic uh, employment training. Uh, so I don't know, you can push back against my framing if you want, but do you think that this is a wise approach? Or do you think that students should be um, willing to continue this kind of wisdom formation uh, into their college career as well? Uh, I guess, how do you make that pitch to prospective college students um, that it's sure. worth investing the money that a Baylor education, for instance, costs? um for this kind of wisdom formation well i think there's there's a couple of different issues there one is the question of of you know discernment i mean at one level um or vocational discernment i mean uh what is it that you're you're called to do and and there's a way in which um a certain kind of uh, uh practical training at different stages is going to become important uh, more important at some stages than at others, but there's also a sense in which uh, growth and wisdom is is uh, no less crucial, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think the, um, the and so the question becomes like, what is the time for which? And and there's a you know, there's a danger. I mean, uh, what you don't want is you know a tenth grader or eleventh grade student thinking, well, I've read Plato now, I know, and I've got Plato now, I've got him figured out, right? Uh, and just sort of now we can move on to, to something else, right? There's a way in which, um, if, if that's the effect of the education, it's probably backfiring, right? Insofar as it's cultivating a kind of uh, 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 a, uh, a presumption rather than 
uh, an introduction to a longer, longer conversation that, that will ultimately be lifelong. So the question is, when you go to university, you know, what is, what is your sense of vocation? Um, and the fact is that um, there's, a, there's a need for, uh, for people to pursue a variety of disciplines and, and to pursue um, a, a range of, of inquiries, but, but the fact is that we all need wisdom, all right? And so um, the, um, the question becomes, um, how do you in fact um, get yourself solidly on the track to grow in wisdom, right? And have you, have you, have you done that? Have you really gotten you know, sufficient, in a sense, a sufficient formation to enable yourself to, to, to grow in wisdom going forward? Um, and there's, there's partly developmental things there. Sometimes people just aren't ready to be pushed uh, to a certain way. I mean, I know uh, a student, for example, who uh, you know, actually went through a classical education and, and actually um, realized after the fact, uh, you know, once he finished his great text education, he realized the gift that he'd also been given in his, his uh, classical education, but he, he didn't really, he, he, would, he would tell you that he hadn't really received it in quite the way that it was intended until later. Mm. So there can often be issues of, of personal uh, receptivity there as well. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that, that what, what we offer at Baylor is a combination. I mean, I'm thinking here specifically of the great text program um, is, a, is a combination of this uh, apprenticeship in uh, pursuing wisdom questions that are in some ways the most practical questions because the, the issues that you are gonna have to deal with, whether it be in the workplace or in business or in education, have to deal with how do you go from the general to the particular and you need practice and skill doing that. And, and um, by uh, reading in the tradition, right? Reading both fictive and philosophical and theological texts, uh, you get practice actually connecting up uh, these things in a way that, that um, is, uh, is distinctive and, and that you don't get advanced practice at in other contexts. Um, but, and you also get an apprenticeship in writing, which of course is a, and, and in analytical skills. And I, I think this actually touches upon another huge thing, which is lots of people will talk about critical thinking skills, but the fact is that a lot of people think that you can develop critical thinking skills by thinking really carefully about nothing in particular. <laughs> right? and, and the fact is that you really need to be engaging important questions, questions about how people order their lives together. What does it mean to be happy? How do you, do you think that's what's gonna make you happy? How do you know? You know how would you deliberate, right? Th those sort of questions to be pushed on those, um, those questions that everybody in a sense presumes an answer to every day. And so it's not like you can just avoid them. Um, those sorts of questions, um, which are not typically part of any particular academic discipline because it crosses the boundary between literature and philosophy and theology. It's those questions that you get a distinctive opportunity to pursue in the context of a great text program. Um, and that's why our you know, graduates go on to a variety of things, whether it be from um, uh, screenwriting to um, 
to education, to pre-law, to pre-medicine, you know. So students go at, into uh, a wide variety of disciplines from, from great texts, but um, uh, it's, the question really isn't what's most useful, but in a sense, what's the best foundation for you to work from so that you can actually be wise going forward, right? I mean, that's, uh, that I think is the, the really the real issue. And the irony is that lots of things that present themselves as super practical are practical for about the next eight weeks, right? Or, or the previous eight weeks, right? And because of the changing character of, of our culture, it's the, um, it's the transferable skills that you really need to, to be able to, uh, to grow um, and to, to, uh, to move forward and adapt to, to in practical ways. So again, which is simply to emphasize wisdom has an intensely practical character to it. And it's just a, a mistaken sort of category distinction in some ways to assume that, well, you can either pursue wisdom or do something practically oriented. Yeah, or uh, that's great, Phil. Thank you. And I think just to extend that, or or that um, you can do something kind of narrowly practical and also accrue the the kind of rigorous training in wisdom that you might get with a more meaty or rigorous uh, set of set of texts and concerns and questions to wrestle with. I mean, I think what you said earlier about uh, critical thinking not being some kind of uh, abstract skill that you can mm. just learn in a vacuum is so important uh, because uh, I think it's true. And it's that, you know, it's sometimes you hear people talk about critical thinking as this kind of thing you can do um, about anything, but it ends up being quite vacuous um, in practice and students get bored doing sort of critical thinking exercises or something um, right. because it's so obviously rote and not substantive. But when you actually are discussing questions of import or trying to, to lead them through difficult, you know, matters of, of prudential debate, you know, what is the best thing to do in this text? You know, what should, is this character making the right choice? Mm -hmm. um, then they start to actually exercise these skills um, because there's something uh, of real import to wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a great way in which that, you know, the, Going back to your example, the fictive context allows a kind of also a, there's there's a a safety in that as well a, that um, that allows them to sort of think through things without having to actually necessarily make the mistake themselves as it were. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what you said about the developmental issues are pertinent as well. And I suppose one implication is that you know these are the kinds of things that hopefully students and us people uh, never stop doing. You know, I just, um, I think I correspond with you about this, but I just recently reread Boethius for the first time in probably, mm. um, I guess almost 15 years, at least 10 years. And, you know, I was a different person reading it. And I, you know, I, I think I read it fairly well the first time, but I certainly um, had different questions this time. And I'm sure if I, if I have the opportunity to read it again in 10 or 15 more years, uh, I'll, wrestle with it on a different level then. So, um, you know, it's certain, this developmental issue is certainly something I see with my students, you know, when we're reading Job and, uh, and they're 19 years old and they haven't, you know, they haven't really wrestled maybe with loss or suffering yet. 
but I hope that wrestling with that through, say, through Job and his experience and his his poetry, um, maybe will give them the foundation for when they experience that or, or their friend experiences that. Um, and then, but I also hope that they, they'll return to Job at that time, at that juncture in their life when they need it again. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it, the pursuit of wisdom is never something that you can kind of check off the box and say, I have now attained this skill and can move on. Right. And I think that, that those are good examples that of the way in which what you're doing in the classroom is in some sense, introducing the students to, to these texts and to these writers in a way that, that does prepare them for the future, right? That, that allows them to in a sense, get a, a small taste of the conversation in which these texts participate and how they're relevant to their lives so that they're aware of, oh, there is this conversation that's been you know, going on for a while. I'm not the first you know, person to have to wrestle with these issues or, um, and that people, um, yeah, they're not sort of isolated and they're not some, you know, waiting for some random moment in their, in their forties to this, for wishing they'd, you know, read some book like that, that, that kind of helped them out in some way. Right. But to yeah. be actually able to, to already be part of the conversation, um, and to be apprenticed in how to, to, to participate in that conversation so that they can do so fruitfully with respect to their own lives. Yeah. They know, they know where to turn and, and how to navigate it. Yeah. Um, do you think, I guess this is still on this topic of this distinction between um, college and K through 12. Do you think that there are particular um, gaps or sort of misguided approaches that you see in K-12 education that contributes to say a misunderstanding of the value of the liberal arts um, that contributes toward to that contributes to this perception that education and particularly that college education uh, is just career training. Um, I, I guess in, in your sort of shifts or movements between the college classroom and your discussions with K through 12 educators, um, what do you think we can do in K through 12 education that might help students and parents and society more broadly um, to recognize and appreciate the values of this kind of training and practical wisdom? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I've been impressed by as I uh, you know, work with you know, teachers in classical schools, you know, uh, in a variety of different contexts um, is the, um, the sense in which a lot of the teachers are drawn to classical education because they've recognized how they're teaching and what they're teaching and how they're teaching uh, can be actually integral to their own personal intellectual and spiritual growth right, as human beings. And I think there's a way in which um, that helping them make that connection is, is transformative. So that it's not just them thinking, okay, we've got this sort of content of deliverables here and I'm working on some sort of uh, social manipulation method to get these people to comply and get these test results. But in fact, what they're doing, the vision of what they're doing is in fact, uh, seeing how their own growth in wisdom is 
connected with what they're sharing with students and how they're helping students themselves to grow in wisdom in a way that um, uh, is, again, alive uh, for them as teachers and uh, as, 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 and as students. And I think that, that as I've watched teachers, um, that seems to me to be, make the biggest difference in, uh, in both sort of student engagement and, um, and a teacher's sense of, of vocation and, and uh, enjoying what they're doing as well. And I think if, if I think that's one of the distinguishing features of, of classical education more broadly. And uh, I think that that is one of the things that, that could still be, be strengthened further and uh, in a way that uh, would have a transformative effect uh, across, across the board. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're articulating how um, you know, education as content delivery or skill acquisition uh, or, you know, the, the, the efficacy of one's educational um, practice as measured by student performance on standardized tests. All those approaches can be very deadening, I think, and take the, the joy and the excitement out of what should be a transformative engagement for both teachers and students. Um, but for a lot of reasons, uh, it's, it's often not. And maybe the classical model and that setting for, for a variety of reasons might offer more opportunities for, for teachers and students to uh, experience that kind of transformation that is possible um, when both, when, when, a, when a group of people get together of different uh, skill levels or wisdom levels and uh, you know, together communally practice the arts of learning. Then, then, it, then it can be a remarkably exciting uh, mm -hmm. activity and, and hopefully um, kind of prepare students to, to continue to search out opportunities for that kind of engagement. Um, I, I guess, uh, I, I guess one other question I might have is, um, where, where you see sort of the, the activities of a classical classroom differing from those that might be typical of a more uh, contemporary approach. Uh, are there any sort of uh, lessons or uh, features that you would point to that would distinguish, um, you know, the, the approach to the verbal arts as seeds or this kind of Christian anthropology uh, and how that would filter down into the the way that the classroom dynamics might look practically different? Well, the main uh, distinction would be the way in which uh, you're allowed to talk about highest purposes, right? And, and what that looks like. Um, if your highest purpose for human beings is to get a job, right? If that's sort of your, your highest good in terms of your instructional ends, uh, then, uh, and if you're not allowed to talk about certain things like uh, growth and virtue formation, um, then, uh, then that does shape what you can explicitly kind of aim for pedagogically. Whereas um, if you're in a context where you're able to, to talk about the fact that, that humans are, um, are made in the divine image uh, and that uh, 
uh, because of that, they have an intrinsic worth that is greater than whatever amount of money they might make, right? I mean, that, that their, their worth is not a function of their uh, economic status, that, that um, or, or, their, or their, their worth is not a, uh, you know, a function of, of their, um, even their abilities, but it's, it's based on the fact that they're made in God's image, right? And that, 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 that ability for, uh, for interpersonal communion is the thing that, that distinguishes them. And that for teachers to, to be able to, to, um, to both explicitly talk in those terms and to, to both, and have the opportunity to live out in a, a, a for students that, that difference I think can, can be huge. Um, there, there, there are other aspects, um, whether it be the, the degree of flexibility and, and I know like, again, I don't want to be critical of, of, sort of many people I know who are doing the best they can in difficult circumstances. So I'm, I'm, I'm very um, kind of, I wouldn't want to say anything critical. Um, so I, I, about, you know, what anybody's trying to do in terms of the, doing the best they can in, in very difficult circumstances, but uh, it, it really is, um, difficult for um, for a lot of classroom teachers in, in public schools to to work against the, a bureaucratic system. Um, I know that that's one of the themes of, of uh, in, in conversations I've had with uh, uh, people with experience in the public school system. Um, and there's a less of that, I'd say, in, in some of the uh, Christian classical schools, um, uh, but uh, yeah, nobody's free of that entirely in our age, but uh, uh, that would be another kind of layer of difference. But the, the main one I, I would see as is the ability, the assumed vision of the hu highest human good is what's, what's at stake there. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think that also um, in a way serves as a response to another common critique of liberal arts or classical education, which can be that, um, they're elitist or uh, only for a privileged few. But I think framing it that way shows how it really is an education uh, for everyone. And it's actually in many ways a subversion of a meritocracy that awards uh, prestige and you know, value only to those few who get the highest test scores or um, land the, the highest paying jobs. Um, but it's instead it's an education for for everyone, um, no matter what they're going to do. Yeah, I think that is uh, that is I, I, again a key feature of it, insofar as it's it's uh, it's an understanding of human formation that's that's based on um, something that all humans are are able to do and and are um, that is a part of their their nature as humans to. To pursue wisdom, it's it's uh, one of those questions that that we, uh, one way or another, we need to to answer. Where shall wisdom be found? And uh, uh, the fact that so many people are are satisfied getting their answers, uh, or the answer to the question of you know where shall wisdom be found is is uh, in the daily news, um, is uh, something that even just teaching people to to question that assumption. Uh, can be uh, can be helpful. 
Well, I certainly agree with that. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe uh, I think we're near the end of our time, but I wanted to just ask you uh, this final question. Um, and you can, you know, uh, take, take it whatever direction you want. But what gives you hope uh, when you survey the landscape of higher education and think about uh, the task of teaching the next generation these uh, liberal arts and the, the practices and the arts of um, wisdom? Where do you find uh, grounds for hope? Mm. I, I suppose that, that at one level, in terms of things I've, I've witnessed, uh, the, the basis for hope would be this sense of uh, seeing both uh, students and teachers come alive in response to recognizing that that they are interested and have a vested uh, interest in in these um, wisdom questions. Um, and so I would say, um, you know, the signs for hope are in, um, to some extent in, in the opportunities to make something like a, a classical education available to a, a, a wider um, number of people. Um, and there are, there are signs of that. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, but it'll, it'll, it'll take time. Um, I suppose that, yeah, the, the most sort of profound uh, connection though is the, the one I mentioned earlier in terms of recognizing how the ability, the, the students' abilities to, to, to see, oh, and to come alive. This isn't just uh, a perfunctory exercise. This is something that um, that matters to the teacher in a personal way and it's intrinsic to their growth. They don't, they wouldn't say it that way, but they recognize when, when the things that they're discussing and the things that they're learning are crucial for the teacher, uh, the students recognize that. And I think, um, the, uh, the transformation of, of, uh, of teachers, um, new teachers who are coming in and being able to uh, to see, oh, this is um, uh, this classical education isn't just a perfunctory thing. It's actually uh, an introduction to wisdom, and and this is a good thing that we can offer. Um, I think that that would be the one of the key signs of hope that that it's connected also with their own uh, development as human beings, and so it's that sense of personal connection. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I hope the listeners will keep an eye out for uh, the lost seeds of learning, the verbal arts and Christian faith. Do we know, do you have a sense yet when that will come out later this year? It'll be later this year. Okay. So keep yeah. an eye out for that. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. And uh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, and all the best wishes on the rest of your semester. Thank you. You take care.